Throughout history, uh, being a left-handed person was never something that you really wanted to be. Uh, Historically, the left hand or the left side is always a side that had negative connotations put with it. Uh, For example, the the Latin word sinistra originally meant left, left hand or the left side, but it it took on this meaning of, of evil or misfortune. And that trickles into our English language through that negative word, sinister. On the flip side of that, um, the Latin word for the right hand or the right side is dexter. And if you think about uh, one of some of our English words, you might think of the word ambidextrous, which would mean someone is skillful with both of their hands. But if you kind of break it back down to the Latin root, it would be that Well, someone actually has two right hands, not a right hand and a left hand that they can both use, but they have two right hands. The antonym of the word ambidextrous is the word ambisinistrous. And you break that back down to its Latin roots, it's that someone actually has two left hands. Uh, Someone is doubly clumsy. Someone is doubly misfortunate. You don't want to be those things. Uh, In Hebrew and other cultures from, from that part of the world, The left hand was a side that's always associated with um, evil and misfortune and judgment, a lot of bad things. Uh, But the right hand is always seen as a side of of power and strength and blessings. Uh, The left hand is the side that's always seen in the negative. Uh, But the right hand, the right hand is always seen in the positive. Now, left-handers don't dismay. Being a left-handed person is not a bad thing. Uh, Being a fellow left-handed person, we have a lot of things we can be very proud of. For instance, did you know that just 13% of the entire world's population is left-handed? Meaning, if you're a left-handed person, you are one unique and special individual. There's a saying, and I think it's been proven fact now, that um, everyone is born right-handed, but only the greatest people can overcome their right-handedness. For example, here's the way that left-handers have overcome the ways right-handed society has tried to push us down. Scissors. Spiral-bound notebooks. You want a fresh, clean sheet of paper, but we have to go over the spiral, which is on the left side, making penmanship very difficult. But we've overcome. We've learned to deal with it. Think of even an appliance like a refrigerator. They're typically made so that as you open it, it's easy for a right-handed person to get in, whereas we left-handed people have to do kind of an awkward dance to, to figure out how to open it. But we're not held down by that. In fact, science is showing us that because brains are cross-wired, uh, meaning that the, the left side of your brain controls the right half of your body and the right side of your brain controls the left half of your body, because brains are cross-wired, science has proven that left-handed people are the only people who are in their right minds. (laughs) Thanks for the sympathy laugh. (laughs) Right-handers, I mean no judgment. I don't mean anything bad against you. Uh, So please don't tune me out. But but left-handers, today today we finally get a little something for us. Uh, We're going to read this story in a minute about a left-handed man named Ehud. And it's this left-handed man who God uses to free the people of Israel from, from the oppression that they found themselves in. And I'll be up front and say that, that the story is slightly gruesome. But there are some profound takeaways for our own lives even after reading the story and thinking about it today. So I'm going to read this story. It comes to us from um, the book of Judges in the Old Testament, chapter 3. You can follow along and the words will be on the screen behind me. 
And this is uh, Ehud's story. Um, Judges chapter 3, starting at verse 12, and I'm going to read through verse 23. That's not actually the complete story. If you want that, go ahead and uh, when you get home today, read the rest of it. There's some more interesting things. But this is uh, 12 through 23. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a foot and a half long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way the men who had carried it. At the idols near Gilgal, he himself turned back and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. The king said, Quiet. And all his attendants left him. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his summer palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade which came out his back. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch He shut the doors of the upper room behind him, and he locked them. Uh, This is God's word for us today. Sally has a new boyfriend. And this new boyfriend makes Sally feel alive. When he calls her on the phone, you you can hear the, the flutter in her voice as she giggles and flirts with him on the phone. Uh, when they hold hands, when they hug, when they touch, she glows with delight. Uh, when they go to a movie theater, they, they put up that dividing center armrest and they, they cuddle up so close till they come just one amorous blob. Uh, you can't really tell where Sally ends and where the new boyfriend begins. And from people who observe them, everyone would say they are in love. And Sally is so sure about it that she's been going around and she's telling everyone that he's the one. But as someone who knows Sally, you know that Sally always has a new boyfriend. And you know that Sally's new boyfriends, each and every one of them, has always been the one. And as you meet this new boyfriend, she, he's all these things. He's so handsome, and he's so smart, and he's so athletic, and on and on it goes. And it takes all of your strength not to roll the, your eyes to the back of your head. It takes all of your restraint not to slap her. Try to find some sense into her. Because you know that this boyfriend is no different than the last one. And you know that just in a couple weeks or maybe in a month, she's going to call you, and you're going to be on the cleanup crew as you go out to coffee. And you'll sit and listen to her while you're at coffee as she cries and tells you about how this one just wasn't the one for whatever variety of reasons there are. And as a good friend, you'll sit and you'll listen, but as you leave, you'll sigh in angst 
because it's like a broken record playing the same line over and over again. Same thing, different boyfriend. And you know that in a couple weeks, Sally's going to have another new boyfriend. And so it goes over and over again and again. Over and over, uh, again and again. Uh, The text today starts out and says, Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That line is like the song on the radio that no matter what station you turn it to, you keep hearing the same song and you just wish that something else would come on. In the book of Judges, that line, once again the Israelites did evil, happens seven times in the first 13 chapters. Over and over, again and again, the cycle continues on. A couple weeks ago, we looked at the cycle of the book of Judges. What happens within this book of the Bible? It goes something like this. God brought the Israelite people into this promised land, a land that was to be filled with blessings and shalom. Shalom being a Hebrew word for a a complete fulfillment or a, a complete sort of peace. And the Israelites were to have this shalom when they obeyed the scope of the laws that God had given them and more importantly, when they worshiped him exclusively. But, but the Israelites just couldn't do it. The, the task was simple. Stay faithful to God and everything would be fine. But the Israelites just, just couldn't stay faithful. And, and so as we read this story, we, we sigh in angst. We, we almost tug on our hair and say, what a bunch of idiots. They know exactly what God has asked of them, exactly what they need to do, and they don't. Why can't they just stay faithful? As, uh, as outsiders looking in, it, it's, it's pretty easy for us to notice these sort of things, right? Um, as Sally's friend, you know that this new boyfriend who you've just met, within 30 seconds, you know he's just like the last one. But even if you told Sally that, it wouldn't make a difference, A few weeks later, when the guy starts to show his true colors, then she finally figures it out and she vows that it will never happen again. But you know otherwise. You tell your kid to pick up the toys they leave out on the floor, the the toys that you stepped on when you were getting ready for work this morning, the toys you told them to pick up last night, the toys that you'll probably step on again tomorrow morning because they still haven't picked them up. And the kids know the consequences. They know about the anger. They know about the yelling. They know about a possibility of a spanking or losing toy privileges for a certain amount of time. But it doesn't matter. Nothing changes. They keep doing the same thing. Sally keeps dating bad boyfriends. You keep stepping on Legos every morning. The computer's web browser goes to websites you maybe shouldn't be at. You take one more drink than you really need. Your anger keeps brooding inside until it starts coming out in unholy ways. And over and over, again and again, the cycle continues. And so as thoughtful, intelligent people, which we all are who are gathered here today, we might ask the question, what is it about the human heart? Or or what is it about the human condition that we know what is the right thing to do And we know the consequences of not doing that, but yet we continue 
to move in the opposite direction. What is it about the human condition that makes us this way? The Bible gives us an answer for this. The Bible would say that the answer is sin. That's right. Sin. Are we going to talk about sin? We are. We're going to talk about sin for a little bit. Uh, the Bible says that, that the human heart is enslaved by sin. In the book of Romans, uh, Paul, he's writing to the church in Rome. In, in chapter 7, he says, The things that I want to do, the good that I want to do, I can't do it. But the things that I hate, those are the things I continue to do. And a little bit later on, he says, I am sold as a slave into sin. And sin is more than just this sinful sort of action. Um, Sin becomes a power. Sin causes destructive things to happen in our own lives. As a sinful action continues to grow and continues to happen again and again, it grows and it grows. And the heart and the mind and the will that seemingly might know better continue to shrink down less and less. The sinful action continues. It grows and it grows. The consequences become greater. The destructive power gets to be more. The heart, the mind, and the will shrink towards what it is. The sin now has a destructive power. And then the cycle goes on over and over again and again. Sinful action leads into destructive powers. And this morning, the Israelites, they give us a first-hand look at this. Uh, The text says, because they did evil in the eyes of the Lord, the Lord gave them over to a guy named King Eglon, king of the Moabites. Uh, Israel, they want to be just like their neighbors. You know, um, their neighbors are worshiping a God. That seems pretty cool. I want to worship the God they're worshiping. Israel would say, you know, the other nations around me, they have a lot of different sexual freedoms. I would like to have that sexual freedom too. Uh, The Israelites would say, well, it looks like this nation kind of sets their own moral code. Nobody tells them what to do. I want to be that way. I want to have those same things too. And so the sinful actions in the community of Israel grow and they grow and they grow. They give, uh, the Israelites give those things more time, more resources, more energy until finally God says, enough. If you want, if you have such an appetite for sin, then it's time to let sin have the rule over you. I will let the fat of sin rule over you. And so then enters this man named King Eglon, which the text says he's a a very, a very fat man. This like embodiment of the greed, the gluttony, everything Israel had chased after, everything Israel craved Now they pay it to King Eglon, continually paying him the things that he needs, continually paying tribute to him just to try to cope with the situation they're in. More and more they pay to him, over and over again. The cycle grows, things get worse. Israel craves something more than they crave God. And friends, that's... That's what sin is. That's a way to think about sin. Uh, Sin is is craving something more than you crave God. And those cravings come in a variety of ways. You know, 
the stores have just put out the new fall fashions, and so you crave after the latest trends. You crave your neighbor's brand new motorcycle gleaming in his driveway, and you want it. You crave just to see a little bit more skin, just a little bit more. Before you know it, those actions grow a little bit larger, a little bit more, and suddenly you might find yourself in a place that you never thought you would be in. Maybe you have credit card debt that you can no longer pay off. You, you brood and you're evil and you're, you're, you're intense inside and, and nothing ever satisfies you because you look at everything else that everyone else has and you want it and you can't have it and you don't have it. Or maybe pretty soon, the stuff you're looking at, there's nothing left there to see but skin. And so the process starts and things grow and it gets worse and worse and over and over again and again the cycle continues. And finally, those things become the master. A master who doesn't relent. A master who demands that you continually feed it. A master who demands that you give it more and more and more. And you never are really fully satisfied, but yet you still have to give it more. It takes the Israelites 18 years 18 years dealing with a situation, 18 years feeding this corpulent king before they finally decide that it's time to cry out to God for help. I think we call this sort of thing denial. Um, A destructive, harmful situation that you stay in and refuse to move on from. 18 years the Israelites are in denial. 18 years they pay tribute to this man just to cope with it. Maybe if they pay him a little bit more, things will less. Maybe if they pay him a little bit more, things will be less. But he never asks for less. He asks for more and things become more and more oppressive. And after 18 years, the Israelites finally cry out to God and say, God, we need an intervention. We need deliverance. And God sends in a left-handed man named Ehud to get the job done. Uh, Ehud goes to see this man, this king Eglon, brings him the tribute, leaves, but then turns back because there's, there's a secret message that he needs to bring to the king. And uh, Ehud gets one-on-one time with King Eglon and says, King, I have a message from God for you. Now, the word message here in the Hebrew is the word dabar. And at its most basic translation, uh, the word dabar means word. And I really, really wish that our English translation had left it as, I have a word for you, O king. Because when it comes down to it, what Ehud says is, Eglon, I have the word of God for you. And the word of God comes in the form of this foot-and-a-half-long, double-edged sword that Ehud uses to slay the king. And this is, this is a gruesome part of the story. I, I understand this. Um, but Ehud takes the sword, stabs the king in the belly, and, and the king has grown so large after years of gluttony and, and feeding. And he's so large that the text says the sword is swallowed up, handle and all. 
Now, the version we read this morning tames uh, the situation a little bit from what it is, but in the Hebrew, it says, after the sword is swallowed up, that the king's bowels discharge. Ehud stabs the king in the most filthy, foul, gut-wrenching, stinking part of his body, and it comes spilling forth, and the king is lying on the floor, dead. What I, want you, what I want you to see here is that political freedom for the Israelites came through a left-handed man. A left-handed man who, who killed the physical person, who killed that person who was ruling over them, who was demanding tribute. But spiritual freedom for the Israelites came through the word of God. Spiritual freedom that cut to the nastiest part, exposed it, and left it dead on the floor. Spiritual freedom came through the word of God. The Israelites found themselves enslaved to this this fat, this grotesque, this large king because they wanted to choose the things of the world more than they chose a relationship with God. Uh, Their spiritual appetite got so messed up that they found themselves enslaved to these um, harmful, destructive habits. And it left them helplessly suffocating under the weight of it all. And so as we take a look at this story and say, well, what does it mean for us? Like, what's the intersection in our lives, right? Well, part of it is to show us that sinful actions lead to sinful addictions. And I want you to hear me really clearly on this. I'm not saying in any way that addiction can just be attributed to sin because addiction is way more than that. But what I am saying is that sinful actions lead to sinful addictions. And it happens sort of like this. There's this sinful action and you start to give it more and more time. The more and more time and resources you give to the sinful action, the more and more tolerant of that thing you become. The more and more tolerant of that thing you become, the more and more that that thing starts to demand from you. And the more and more that thing starts to demand from you, the more and more you find yourselves being controlled by it. And suddenly we find ourselves in situations we never thought we'd be in. We find ourselves being controlled by things we never thought that we would be controlled by. Find ourselves, maybe things that we thought would bring us control but have now turned the tables and those things control us. Sinful actions leading to sinful addictions. And when we get to that point, what is left to do, we need a deliverer. We need some way to help the situation. We're looking for an intervention. The Israelites cry out to God for this deliverance. And God provides Ehud who brings the word of God. When we find ourselves in the midst of some of these maybe addicting sinful actions that have become destructive powers in our own lives, it's not going to be enough just to slap your hand, say, stop, just no more, you're done. It's not enough. It's not enough just to, to say, you know what? Tomorrow's a new day, I'll try harder then. It's not enough. What you need is to start developing an appetite for God. 
a way to, to taste and see and experience who God is in a life-giving way. What does your spiritual diet consist of right now? What does it look like? Do you value, do you crave the things that the world tells you you should crave? Or do you more highly value a relationship with God? And that leads to, uh, logically, the next question is, well, how, how do you develop this appetite for God? Well, it starts with something called worship. Uh, daily, intentional worship. Not just Sunday morning for an hour, but things that happen throughout the week. Ways to see, experience, to, to rejoice in what God has done for you, to, to laugh, to cry, to, to really absorb what grace means in your life. And a place to start is with God's own double-edged sword. In the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 12, it says, For the word of God is living and active, uh, stronger than any double, sharper than any double-edged sword. It cuts us open to expose us to the things that God is that God is saying to us, so that we might listen and obey. Uh, in some sense, take it back to the picture that that happened in the story. It's like the word of God can come in sharper than a double-edged sword to open up the filth, the addictive habits we've fallen into to to see how sin is opening. And that word of God convicts us. It shows us what's going wrong. The word of God also points us to the true deliverer, someone to, to pick up where we've fallen. The book of John says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John's making reference to, to Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus Christ being this true fulfillment who is the Word of God in all of its fullness. The Word of God who comes into your life to not leave you dead and helpless on the floor in sin, but to pick you up and give you grace. Are you willing to let Jesus become your master. A master who doesn't make you pay tribute to him for his own personal gain. A master who loves you so much that he gave himself for you. A master who knew you before you knew him and who loves you and calls you by name. This morning we're going to... um, engage in an ancient practice of the church called communion, sometimes known as the Eucharist, other times known as the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper today is this tangible, experiential way to taste who God is, to to know it, to taste and experience. We call it the Lord's Supper in that way that we can come and, and actually taste, but we also call it the Lord's Supper because It's God who sets a table before us and says, these are my promises that I give to you. Taste and see what that that is for your own lives. My promise is that grace is for you. My promise is that my son Jesus Christ died for you. And so as we come to this table this morning, whether it's for the first time, maybe it's for the first time in a long time, maybe it's for the 100th or the 1,000th time. But today we come up to, to taste 
taste and experience and see who God is, who this true fulfillment of the word is. We can taste and see that the Lord is good and that his mercies are new and extended to us every day.